I think for many of us, uh, we view our, our current days as dark times. I mean, even what we are witnessing in the news beginning yesterday, these are difficult days, uh, whether it be in our nation or in nations around the world. And if that is the case, we often sit around and try to figure out what would be most needful. What do we need most as a people? What would our country do well uh, to do in such situations? But I think the question before us should also be, what should the church be doing? Uh, what is uh, our particular role as far as a solution in the midst of dark days? Of course, how you answer that question is determined a lot by what you think the church is and how she functions and what is most precious that she's been entrusted with. So I want us to see that this morning as we look at this chapter of 1 Samuel. We look at this first uh, several verses. I want us to see this darkest hour. Our text begins, it says, with Samuel ministering before Eli, and we are immediately clued in to just how bad the situation currently is in the nation. We learn that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Uh, the, the word is literally, it's precious. Uh, precious as in a supply and demand sort of way. Uh, it, it's rare because it's so, uh, it's precious because it's so infrequent. The need is great, but the supply of God's word at this point is scarce. And then we learn that there is no frequent vision, or even more literally, there's no vision breaking forth or bursting out. There's no prophetic speech. There's no one there to bring revelation from God to the people. Uh, you know, you've read those verses, you know, where there is no vision, the people perish. And usually uh, it's in the midst of a big church like vision campaign where we're talking about plans and strategies. That's not what it means in the Old Testament. It means when there's no prophetic vision, if there's no revelation from God, if God isn't speaking to the people, their lives are in danger because they have no direction. So how can one know, for instance, God's will if he doesn't communicate with them, if he just never speaks? And here in this time in Israel's life, there is no common speech from God. They're literally sitting in the dark. I mean, many of you know uh, Francis Schaeffer's, uh, the title of his famous work, He is There and He is Not Silent. Well, it's quite the opposite in this text. God is there, but he is silent. Uh, and most of us realize that when a loved one isn't speaking to you, that's not usually considered a good sign. You know, husbands, if you're getting the silent treatment, that usually means there's something relationally broken uh, and there's some solving that needs to take place. And that's what we have going on with Israel. I mean, what separated Israel from the other nations? What made them special? Well, yes, they were God's people, but also that there were those who held God's revelation. They had his words, the very oracles of God, and they were to be a light as a people because they had that word to the nations around them. But here there is no word from God and thus no light in Israel. I mean, worse still, our priest in this text, our high priest has literally lost his vision. Uh, we learn that Eli is going blind in this text. This one uh, who has been uh, partially at least given to Israel to be a light for them so that they could be a light to the nations. He himself is sitting in darkness. 
And while it's true that Eli literally physically lost his sight, the author in Hebrew is telling us a whole lot more than just his physical ailment. I mean, when you see these sorts of descriptions in the Hebrew Bible, you should take note. You'll notice the Bible, the Old Testament doesn't give you a lot of physical details about people. Uh, I mean, how many of your biblical heroes could you draw from what the scriptures told you concerning them? I mean, the only things we know are if there is some special or important reason for us to know them about their physical appearance. So just as Saul, we will learn coming up in this particular book of the Bible, his size, his height, yes, it's literal, but it's also teaching us something about what it means for him in relation to the nation. Remember, the great ones are going to be brought low. Or Absalom, we're told about his long hair, and it's not just that he's got these beautiful flowing locks. It tells us something metaphorical about him, about his pride, and about what will ultimately be his downfall. And so this physical description of Eli is teaching us on several levels. This darkness that has closed in over Eli's world is the same darkness that is closing in over Israel's national life. And it's all because God will not speak to them. I mean, if your priestly seer has gone blind, just how dark is it, you know, in your nation's history? What is fascinating, both in the text and in all of Scripture, is that vision, which we normally associate with the eyes, in Scripture is often linked to the ear. <laughs> they couldn't see because God wasn't speaking, which seems strange. Is, you, know, uh, you would think uh, we, we would need to see God if, if the problem is a vision problem, but in the scriptures, it's through the ear that one gains sight. If you want to see clearly, you have to hear clearly. You know, you know the verses, you know, God's word is a what? It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's how we see where we're supposed to be going. If you look carefully at the text, there are six references to physical or metaphorical sight, and then 16 references to physical or metaphorical hearing. There is no speech from God, and therefore no vision gets through. Eli is losing his sight, and all of Israel is walking around blind because there is a scarcity of the word of God in Israel. I mean, considering all that we know as readers, we're living in the time of the judges, already a horrendous period in Israel's history. We have just learned in the previous chapter that the priests of God, the ones who mediate on behalf of God to the people through sacrifice are actually taking the sacrifice and eating them themselves, gorging themselves and thieving from both God and man. And now we hear that God has stopped talking that he barely breaks through anymore at all. I mean, this is Israel's darkest hour. Maybe you've seen those demotivational posters. You know, the motivational ones where it you know, tells you to do something magnificent. And there's usually, you know, a picture of a bald eagle flying over, you know, some, some seascape. Well, you know, people have taken those uh, very optimistic posters and have very optimistic pictures with very negative uh, um, uh, or demotivational saying. So for instance, you know, one of them uh, that I read has a huge picture of a mountain. The, the title, the big word is motivation. And then underneath it in small print, it says, remember every dead body at the top of Mount Everest was once a highly motivated person. 
or ambition. And underneath it, the early bird gets the worm, but the early worm gets eaten. Um, well, there's one that has, you know, a sun setting over a mountain. It's just about to go dark, and it says, they say the darkest hour is just before it goes pitch black. And that's about what's happening in this text. Like, we've seen the book of Judges. We've encountered it. That's bad. It's dark. And then we realize this is all we've got left are, are these spiritual leaders in Israel, and they are completely perverting the worship of God. And now the high priest is blind, and God's not speaking to the people anymore. Uh, it is about as dark as it can get, and it looks like it has the potential to go pitch black. And so when we read, but the light of the temple had not yet gone out, as a reader, we're not quite sure how to take that. Uh, you know, it's hard to discern initially. Is this some sort of foreboding as if the light of the temple is about to get snuffed out as if it's, you know, this is the last flickering light we have, but even it is going to be diminished? Or is it rather that as dark as it is, there's still this faint yet real flicker of hope in Israel, some small ray of light. Well, the text actually tells us how to read it by how the author situates the scene. Uh, because next to this flickering light lies little Samuel. You know, this only ray of hope in the last several chapters has been the promise of this boy, the birth of this boy, and then his rearing. And next to the light of the temple lies little Samuel. He, uh, to us as readers, he's like, you know, Obi-Wan to Leah. He is our only hope in this text. If Samuel doesn't get it, no one's going to get it because there's nothing on the horizon that God has been doing. He is a flickering light in the midst of all this dark business. And so just like physical appearance in the Hebrew language tells us more than what is literal, and physical, so even situational, where things are placed in a text, physical location means something. So notice Eli lies in his own place, we are told, and he lies in the dark because he can't see anything. But Samuel lies between the ark of God and the flickering light of the tabernacle. Both of these things representing on earth the very presence and glory of God, and there lies Samuel in the midst of them. We have all of Israel outside of the tabernacle in the dark in desperate need of light, in need of a word from God. And then we have Samuel laying down, if you will, in the presence of God. I mean, will Samuel be a solution to Israel's promise? Well, you'll notice we don't have to wait long to find out because we see in these next verses, four and following, that a light breaks in. In this darkest hour, a little light breaks in. I mean, after many long nights of no speech from God, on this particular night, something shifts in the history of Israel that will change her direction forever. The Lord begins to speak in our story, and the long wait is over. Or is it? I mean, we get excited because the Lord speaks, but then immediately the story stalls. God is speaking, but no one is hearing no one seems to be able to communicate with them. We, we see uh, this strange oddity to begin with. God speaks and he doesn't speak to his high priest. He speaks to a little boy in the tabernacle. 
even though the message is for the high priest. He doesn't even speak directly to him anymore. God, if you will, bypasses his normal mode of operation and goes to this young man. But even with this potentially good news of him speaking to Samuel, we're a little disturbed because as readers, we know what Samuel and Eli don't. That yes, God is speaking, but no one can seemingly get the message. Three times we are told God calls Samuel and three times Samuel, like a dutiful young man, jumps up and goes to Eli and says, you know, what do you need, Lord? I'm here. Your servant's ready. And time and time again, these three attempts by God and three failures, because Samuel can't discern between God's voice and Eli's voice. You know, whatever he's been trained in, in his years interning in the tabernacle, he's never been trained to hear the voice of God, probably because it wasn't coming often enough. But he doesn't know what he sounds like. He doesn't even know what he would say in response. He has no idea how to get a message from God. And so time and again, he fails in recognizing it. But even in his clumsiness, we as readers are drawn to Samuel because like he jumps up and he runs to elderly blind Eli and says, what can I do for you in the middle of the night? He just seems like the kind of person that we want to be the hero of our story. But we're also concerned because if this favored boy that we've been waiting on, if he can't discern the voice of the Lord and if he doesn't know the Lord, what hope is there if this message doesn't get through? But we're told that while Samuel is in one sense given an excuse, he is not, does not yet know the Lord because he has not yet heard from the Lord. We again witness the dullness of Eli. It takes Eli, the high priest of the Most High God, three times before it dawns on him. Hey, maybe that's the Lord speaking to us. We've already seen this dullness. We have a, a woman praying in, in the tabernacle, and he accuses her of being a drunk. We have his sons pillaging the people, and he's hearing about it from a distance and barely trying to restrain it. And now we wonder, you know, is he going to miss it again? But after the third try... Eli realizes if it's not me and no one else is here in the Lord's house, <laughs> it must be the Lord who's speaking to you. And the fourth time when God comes, we get this amazing description. The Lord came and he stood and he called. The one who has in effect been missing from Israel comes and notice he stands in the midst of the place and he speaks. The same description of how he spoke to Moses at Sinai. And our Samuel, who formerly did not know God, is known by God and called by God by name time and time again. And finally, we hear this good word. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And God does speak. That after all these, this time of silence, God is breaking back into the history of Israel with speech. I mean, Samuel in this act passes from not knowing the voice of the Lord to knowing it. And we pass from not having a word from God to having it. We're going from utter darkness to light. And Samuel, as God's prophet, for his first word, gives a word of destruction for his mentor. And probably a man he loved very dearly. Because Eli did not restrain his boys, says the oracle. 
Everything that was formally told in chapter two were confirmed as coming for sure. I mean, that really puts us in a weird place. What will Samuel do? We learn that he's afraid. He doesn't want to give the message. But this is the true calling of the prophet, right? To speak God's words after him, to deliver a faithful message from God to the people. To say no more than God has said, but to say no less either. And now to the one who has raised and trained him, this first message that he has to deliver is the demise of his entire household. I mean, this is the struggle of all who are charged with relaying God's word. I mean, there are hard words. Words in the Bible of law and of judgment, and there are good words, words of rescue and mercy. And both must be faithfully proclaimed without addition and without subtraction. We are not to withhold the whole counsel of God to God's people because cert- just because certain things have become unfashionable doesn't make them less true. As Chesterton said, fallacies do not cease to be fallacies just because they've become fashions. So we cannot bend, you know, our theology, our preaching uh, on things like gender or sexual ethics or righteousness or hell or the exclusivity of the gospel simply because they don't play well anymore culturally. Uh, because people will think, you know, that we're somehow backwater and fundamentalists, uh, that, that those things, as true as they are, that these sort, sorts of things have become completely out of fashion, the Bible makes plain that it's the church's duty to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to speak God's words after him and not try, if you will, to make him look better than he's asked to look. But at the very same time, we cannot say more than God says. I mean, as ministers of the gospel, we cannot say, thus saith the Lord on issues where God hasn't spoken a clear word. You see this quite often. I mean, what you may think is wise or a good way of going about things is not the same as God commanding things. You know, so don't be upset uh, if the, the local minister doesn't baptize your candidate or your policy or your medical preference or your diet or your way of schooling uh, and says, this is without a doubt God's way, that God doesn't allow for the ministry to say things beyond what he has said. And so we, as those who pass on God's message are to do just that and to leave our preference as much as we humanly can out of it. As Chesterton goes on to say, Christianity is always out of fashion because it is always sane. And all fashions are mild insanities. When Italy is mad on art, the church seems too puritanical. When England is mad on puritanism, the church seems way too artistic. The church always seems to be behind the times when it is really beyond the times. It is waiting till the last fad shall have seen its last summer. It keeps the key of permanent virtue. And our little Samuel, with his first call as a prophet of God, is go to a man whom he likely loves and is fond of and to deliver a message of utter destruction. And so we learn in verse 15, morning comes and he opens the gates of the tabernacle. And though fearful, he approaches and Eli some sense, thankfully, basically puts an oath on him and says, if you don't tell me everything, may everything that was spoken to you be placed on you and more. Uh, Eli's no fool. He probably knows it's not a good word. 
He's already heard from the man of God in chapter two that his house is going to be destroyed. He already senses that three times God came into the tabernacle to talk to someone and it wasn't him. And so Eli graciously, in one sense, says to Samuel, say the whole thing. Don't hold anything back from me. And so Samuel does. But in that verse 15, we see something so beautiful. The doors of God's house are open. That a new morning comes and a new phase in Israel's history. Notice this light that was barely flickering in the tabernacle. Now that tabernacle is filled with the light of morning, but also the God who had been silent from that tabernacle is about to burst forth out of it and spread his word to the whole nation. And so that's what we want to see finally as light breaks out. In verses 19 through 4.1, you'll, you'll hear this language, Yahweh was with Samuel. And that really is the whole of it, isn't it? He is now God's man. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, it's a merism, basically from north to south, the whole place knows that Samuel's the real deal. He really is God's prophet because God does not let any of his words fall to the ground. And what that means is that every prophetic revelation he gives comes to pass, that all that God speaks through him really does happen. And so the people fear him in that way. And notice how it ends. And the word of God that was revealed to Samuel, we learn in verse one of chapter four, went from Samuel to all of Israel. And that really is the prophetic role, right? God speaks to Samuel. Samuel speaks to the people so that God is speaking to the people. But he's doing so through this mediator. And so the problem we saw at the beginning is all solved by the end. What once was a rarity is now ubiquitous. All of Israel gets the word of the Lord from Samuel. What began in the dark is now bathed in light. And this boy who was at the first simply a servant has now been clearly established as the prophet of God to the nation. And he will go on to do great things. God's light will shine once again in Israel because he has a prophet speaking on his behalf. And as wonderful as it is, we will realize that God and his revelation, the problem of his revelation is not solved because there will be another dark period in Israel's history from the closing of your Old Testament to the opening of the new, this 400 year period where it will go dark again and God will have not said a word to his people. From Malachi to the gospel, there is silence. But into that silence and into that darkness, we have the word made flesh. He steps into the world in order to be the light that shines in the darkness. And this Jesus, the very word of God, notice his first ministry is to proclaim, to be a prophet, to speak forth the very word of God. As we learn from Luke, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. I mean, what do the poor get when the Messiah comes, when Christ the prophet comes? They get a proclamation of good news. What do the captives get? They get a proclamation. They get preaching. That the whole nation gets a proclamation that this is the year of God's favor. God's silence was broken by sending his word in flesh as his final revelation. And that word made flesh makes his first priority the preaching, the revealing of God through proclamation. So that we once for all could know who God is 
and what he's like and what he desires of us. I mean, God put on flesh and he came shouting good news. And he didn't stop preaching that good news until the very end. He only grew silent in order to bring that good news to pass. And like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth when it came to the time of his accusation. Like a sacrificial lamb, there he stood without a word. And in the midst of that execution, he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as if the firmament was made of iron, there is not a word spoken back to him. The heavens are shut to his cry. His question gets no answer. It is given mere silence. That same voice that at his baptism said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, who on his transfiguration says, this is my beloved son, hear him, didn't say a word at the cry of his son. And as we've learned, the silent treatment is never good news. I mean, God doesn't say a word as a sign of displeasure. For our sake, God poured out all his displeasure, all his righteous anger, all the judgment that you and I have ever deserved on his son in whom he has formally declared, in this one I am well pleased. For a brief moment, the light of the world was snuffed out so that you could get a word today, a word of comfort, a word of hope, a word of forgiveness, a word that says that God is for you. You see, a word from God isn't enough, not at least to bring comfort. Ask Eli. God spoke, <laughs> uh, and he did not sleep well uh, that evening. You need a word that is good. You need a, a word that ultimately says that God is for you and not against you. And that is what we get in the gospel of the Son. But what is interesting is, I mean, how do you know? I mean, how do you know today, right now? How do you know that Jesus died? How do you know that he is for you? You see, without present proclamation, God would still be silent. And all that happened 2,000 years ago would be of no avail. Luther says, Christ taking upon himself of humanity would have profited no one had it not also meant the proclamation of the gospel. How can Christ profit us unless he's embraced by faith? And how can he be embraced by faith where there is no gospel being preached? You see, this Jesus who was crucified is God's final revelation, but it doesn't mean that God no longer speaks. I mean, God speaks every single week, week in and week out. He's speaking even now, in the preaching of his word. I mean, it is true that all we need is Jesus. But how do we see Jesus? How do we hear Jesus? I mean, it's the preaching of the gospel that brings Jesus from time and eternity to you personally today. And as dark as the world may be in your own mind, Every week, the light of the gospel comes, and in it, you hear from God himself. Because in the preaching of the word, God himself is made known. You see God every week through your ears. By preaching, he turned the lights on. 
I mean, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but you he made alive. How? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Well, how will they hear if we don't send a preacher? By preaching, we are transformed from glory to greater glory. For in the light of the gospel, we behold Jesus, the very image of God. And we are moved in the beholding of God through the light of the gospel and changed as we look at Christ oddly through our ears. It is true that we live in dark days, but it's not dark merely because of moral corruption or some sort of weakened economy or flawed leadership. These are not our biggest problems. They are dark days in as much and in as so far as the word of God is not known and not being proclaimed from the pulpits of Christ's own church. I mean, when a church is in decline, the very first thing to go is what one believes about the word of God. And part of why we prize the liturgy, you know, isn't just because it's so cool and it's rooted in history. And, you know, the first time you came, you loved it too, I'm sure. Uh, we prize it because it's saturated in the word of God. I mean, read all the things that are put into your mouth. Those are all scripture sentences just taken out and put back in. I mean, would you rather have that or, you know, the guy uh, just, you know, strumming his guitar and mumbling what comes to mind into the microphone? I mean, it's why we sing psalms because they're straight from Scripture and hymns that are biblically saturated. It's why we preach the gospel instead of the culture week after week after week, and we present the gospel in visible form and broken bread and poured out wine. But you see, it's not just that the church won't proclaim it that's at issue. It's that it's not even highly prized oftentimes by God's people. I mean, the question we should ask ourselves is how important is it to us? How important is sitting under preaching to us? How important is being a part of the church to us? I mean, do you realize that every week God comes down and speaks and sheds light and reveals something that was rarely given at this time in Israel's history is now given freely and ubiquitously. But now that it's common, do you treat it as common? I mean, do we pray before we come that God would speak to us? Do you, do you pray for your ministers? We could sure use it. Because people of God, the reason it's so important is this is how we see God. This is how we see it all. I mean, this word preached is a light to our path. It's the word that makes us alive. It's the word that sanctifies us. It is the word that will keep us. And through it, God will build his kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, there were definitely dark days after the coming of Christ, but those dark days are always surrounded by what happens to the word of God in the church. And in the midst of those days, one particular preacher that we know well, Martin Luther, not only began to proclaim the word, but to get the word to as many people as possible. And this is how he recounts the days of the Reformation. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. So may we, people of God, prize and cherish that word. 
And as it comes to us today, may God give us the grace to believe it. Let's pray.